fingers. Yep. All right. Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Very excited to be talking about future cities. We have Sheridan Tatsuno joining us on the show. Hello. Well, hi there. Thank you very much for the invitation today. Appreciate we're, it. We're super excited to host you, yeah. Sheridan. For those that don't know Sheridan's background, he's co-founder of One Reality, which creates VR models of sustainable cities. They are currently operating in Sweden, having built models for Copenhagen, Stockholm, Lund, and Malmo. And the links in the bio to onereality.com, check that out, as well as Sheridan's book link and the Silicon Valley Global Network link and the One Reality VR Demos Facebook group. So go and check those out, everyone. Let's jump into things with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Well, right now we have a climate crisis on our front door and we have less, I think less than 10 years to stop it. And if we don't, it's runaway and we will pay dearly our children and grandchildren. So we have a, a real, um, one of the first times in history to make a significant difference. And it's gonna require everybody, not just one, one company or one country. Everybody's gotta be pulling together. What are some of the best ways that we can pull together for the climate future that we desire? Well, I think right off the bat, um, you know, you can do it every day, just shopping, when you buy things, think about it. Do I really need this? Am I buying from a company that recycles or do they just trash it, right? Like plastics, do I even need plastic? Can I buy biodegradables, right? Um, what types of companies do I support? Because remember, purchases determine stock value prices. And if a million people decide tomorrow not to buy, the stock prices and sales are gonna be reflected immediately. So on contrary to popular opinion, shoppers can literally sink a company in one week. Interesting, okay, so then do we have all these different options that we can do every single day? Mm -hmm. um, so our, our dollars, the way that we, per, our behavior yes. is immediately, um, yeah, affects the global um, future. Right. Yeah, okay, so that's a big one, that's a big one. Um, okay, and it, this is, again, one of the most pressing times for us to come together to mm -hmm. um, take on, to tackle the fire that's in our house right, right now, our disconnection from nature, mm -hmm. from what sustains us mm -hmm. and the way that we're um, mm -hmm. contributing to, to the planet, the Anthropocene. Let's do your journey, Sheridan. So you're born in San Jose. Your grandparents mm -hmm. came from Japan in 1893. It was a very mm -hmm. long time ago. Okay. And you spent most of your life in the Bay Area, spent some time overseas. Mm -hmm. Teach us about who you were as a kid growing up, how you got interested in the fields that you're into now. When I grew up, there was no Silicon Valley. It was all orchards. So I was lucky to watch after NASA went to the moon, the explosion. Uh, if you had asked me back when I was like a kid what the future is, I said automated farms. <laughs> I, and I would have totally missed what happened. So one thing I learned is humility. You cannot predict the future mm. because things happen and government can play a major role. So that's one thing I learned. I was very interested. The reason why I got into urban planning is, is I was in Caracas, Venezuela for a five-year BA program when I was at Yale undergrad. And the children were dying coming in at this food co-op. And I said, why are they dying? It goes, dysentery, dirty water. And I said, because I'd never seen children dying. I grew up at YMCA and it was really upsetting for me when you're young. So I said, how do we stop it? So we put in sewers. So we, all the guys in the, in the slum there, I was living in a slum, we all pitched together. The city wouldn't help us. They lent us equipment, the tubes. So we, over a couple of weekends, we put in a sewer and ran the sewage over 
covered it up, put a park there, basketball courts, nice plaza and all that, and the st children stopped dying. Mm. And I said to my CFG, city planning can save lives. And that's why I got into it. Yeah, whoa. And, and so it's, sometimes it's something like um, the quality of water that mm -hmm. is um, causing sicknesses. That's right. And how can um, urban planning Give us the example that you were when when how how did what you did end up increasing the health of the kids? Well, I mean, in Venezuela when I was there, fifty percent of there were of well, there was a fifty percent mortality rate among babies. Okay, that's pretty high. Yeah. And in the slums, and the reason was we were playing around in the dirty water, and it would get amoebic dysentery. And if you know anything about dysentery, your balls run and you can't stop and you die from dehydration. You can't keep the food or water. And so the kids literally emaciate, look like skeletons and die. And it's pretty, de it is very depressing to watch that in the community. You could see them dying in front of you. So the number one rule, and then Bill Gates talks about it in, in developing nations, is provide fresh water and sanitation. Just doing that, you'll save huge numbers of lives because the problem when you have all the dirty water, all the flies and everything are there and then it infects and the flies land on the food and you get sick and it's so it just, and you try to pump people with antibiotics but it doesn't work because the flies are still there. So the number one rule in all urban planning is eliminate the open sewers by creating um, Sanitation, you know, and this we had uh, chemically treated, but they began to get the cities to invest in, uh, you know, sanitation plants like we have, you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So, you, first of all, get rid of all the dirty water, yeah. and then recycle gray water, which you can use for planting, you know, parks and farms and things like that. Interesting. Um, and then the other part, of, the second part of that is uh, providing fresh water. So a lot of the, you can take gray water and now there's all these new companies doing filtration so they can filter it using you know, solar power to power these things. And then you get pure fresh water. So right now these people spend half the day going to these wells, wells. that are polluted oh. to get water. So ideally you could just have all this gray water or just local water, run it through filtration and then you get pure water. Right off the bat you'll save all these lives because they're not gonna get sick. Right now they're drinking all this feces polluted water. I mean, it's disgusting. I, mean, I, I don't know if you have it. I think to understand, you have to really go to a slum in any one of these countries, or well, even we have them here, but uh, it's really depressing to watch. And it's, you know, there are billions of people like that. And so that's the number one right off the bat. Now, the flip side, obviously, is that when you save a lot of lives, you've got a huge population explosion. So the second half of the equation, and this is probably the most important, is that we're going to go from, what, 7 billion to maybe 12 billion, 11 billion people over the next 100 years. We can't even sustain them now, and it's definitely not with the U.S. lifestyle. So we have to reduce the population, but how do you do that without force, like you know, one-child policy in China? So one of the fastest ways the U.N. recommended, oh, 10, 15 years ago, is educate girls and women. That's the fastest way mm. to reduce family size, and the reason is very simple, is that women who are educated and girls who are educated have a future, they have a career, they're too busy studying and they don't want children because it's a distraction. So what happens is, a, you know, and it's happening worldwide now in different countries like India and even the Middle East, that you'll see families with 12 kids going down to like three or four. Three or four yeah, yeah. 
So if we just educate girls and women, we'll solve probably, I'll say it, maybe half the problems right off the bat. And the good part is we have all these educated women. So think about it. You have all these girls and women, and we're not tapping their brain power because they're not educated enough. So instead of men trying to solve the problem, we have the whole world. Yeah. Smart women and girls yes. solving the problems. And trust me, women and girls are much closer to families, healthcare, education, everything. Mm. So it's probably, I would argue that women will probably come up with like 80% of the solutions mm. to everything. Mm. 80%, not 20, half. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, in my, like my family or in the slums, the mothers and the daughters, the grandmothers always worry about the children's health, mm. their education, mm. the sanitation, the water, the shopping, everything, the housing, everything. So if you don't have the women who are intelligent and educated, then you're, not, you're really working with not even half the brain, one third of the brain or less. And that's what we've been doing for the last, well, millennia. So that's, I would argue that, if I were to say anything that you can do is like um, support women's and girls' education. education. And yeah. not get into this whole birth control issue. I don't think that's an issue. I think let, because what happens is when you educate people, they automatically decide to have on the smaller families, but it's their choice. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it's, that's what I would do, uh, number one. And there's not enough discussion about that. But let's get back to basics, which is... Well, let's hit on those two things quick. Um, we'll, we'll, just that, first it requires a very deep level of, of empathy to, to dive into what it's like living behind the eyes of people that don't have access to clean water. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and that struggle with uh, up to 50% more child mortality rates. Yeah, um, that's crazy and living in slums. Um, these types of things is very important to, 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 to realize that this is us, this is a reflect, this is mm -hmm. our, right. these are our brothers and sisters around the world right. and the way that right. we behave on trying to solve these right. pressing challenges is just right. like if it was a roll of the dice where we're born. Yes. And so it's very important for us to care about this and address it. Right. And it's things like urban planning, things like right. um, preventing sewage systems from mm -hmm. being right there in the middle right. of our water systems. Mm -hmm. So where, whereas in the United States and so many places where we grow up in the developed world, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's now become something that we take for granted, the fact right. that the sewage systems are separate, the water exactly. systems, the recycling of the gray water, mm -hmm. all these types of things. Um, it's very well said. And then the other aspect is, um, it, this has been said a couple times now, but it's, it is very important that when you do educate um, women mm -hmm. and uh, girls that are growing up, uh, I think, it, like you said, could it be that 80% of the massive challenges and um, solutions mm -hmm. uh, will okay. be uh, overcome and, and provided mm -hmm. by women that are being creative in the world? Right. And, I agree that there is a deep connection to um, other humans, to the care for children, to the care for our planet okay. that uh, women helped me dive deeper okay. into. Those were very good points. Mm -hmm. And so, um, okay, so that was, you know, those were your aha moments in Caracas. Mm -hmm. and, okay, okay. And then, um, then when you came, like you were giving us this example, like it's right. orchards in Silicon Valley. Right. Like, the, even that in itself is like, now we're like, tech everywhere, $5,000 a month right. rent, right. you know, so this is completely different. Mm -hmm. And so what have you seen with the evolution you did, um, construction and urban planning um, in the 70s? So yeah, so teach us about it. Well, I mean, 
Well, Silicon Valley was called the Valley of the Heart's Content. It was a beautiful place, orchards, clean water, clean air. It was really paradise. It was really beautiful. Uh, small town San Jose had 100,000 people. No highways, no freeways. 880, 280 did not exist. 101 was a two-lane road, had just went to four lane. Two hours to get San Francisco stoplights, still takes two hours, but traffic jam now. But um, so it's like living in Kansas or Missouri in a small town. And so when I go through the Midwest or into the valley, Central Valley, I meet these small town people, it's like time travel for me. Oh, that San Jose was just like that when I was a kid. So I have a very easy time relating to the Midwest people because they're very modest, the community focused, very um, hardworking, hands on the ground, boots on the ground. Um, modest people, hardworking, really solid. And it was like San Jose when I was a child. And one of the things that people don't talk about is that one of the reasons why Silicon Valley succeeded is we had a lot of vets coming back hmm. from World War II and they didn't want to go back to their home, so they stayed here. And then after the Vietnam War, more stayed here. And many of these vets were from the Midwest and farmers, kids, okay? okay? And if you look at, and nobody's really studied this, many of the engineers were farm boys. They went to the farm colleges like Illinois, University of Illinois and Missouri and all. And then they went and fought and they came back and they go, gee, you know what, I can, I can get a job here because they're looking for engineers. So when I was a child, I remember meeting them. We'd have these block parties, you know, like <laughs> the, the inventor in the you know, garage, famous garages, right? Um, and then one thing that people don't talk about was when we got to the moon in 1969, first thing that NASA did, laid off everybody. So the unemployment rate with, among engineers, I heard, was 35% in Silicon wow. Valley in 1970. It was like total disaster, and then we had recession. So you couldn't get a job. So either you left town or you just did your own stuff. And the only companies in town were chip companies, AMD, National Intel, who created the chips for the moon missions, right, mm -hmm. in Vietnam. So. I remember when I was a kid, you'd see all these guys like hacking away and stuff in their garages. And that's Silicon Valley because yeah. they got laid off basically. And they were farm boys with hands on. Yeah. And so one of the things that, um, the difference between now is now it's all money game. Yeah. Highly educated computer science, PhDs, Cal Stanford and all this. Yeah, yeah. Back then it was more, I remember it was more modest like University of Missouri, Illinois. Farm boys who were really good working with their hands family, friends, helping each other out. Interesting. Yeah. It was a totally different vibe back then. The family then. values were still yeah. present in it's, the earlier formative years. Of it was more Valley. like being in the Midwest today. Interesting. Yeah, correct. But high tech. So if you were to marry yeah. Kansas with, with Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, that's what it was like. Yeah. You can look at the word clouds of mm -hmm. what is in right. people's like Twitter profiles and in yes. Silicon Valley it's yeah. all like product design, Facebook, Google, mm -hmm. in Kansas and other places around the world in the Midwest right. it's like family, love, friends. That's right. Yeah. 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 And then so it was like, yeah, of course you're going to help your friends out. You know, we're all doing it together and then you have picnics and parties and and that's where the the Silicon Valley started. If you really want to talk about it is We'd go to parties, you'd be talking about, hey, what are you doing? What kind of startup? What kind of engineering? Like, oh, Atari, you're working at Atari? He got a job, and then everybody get hired right through a party to Atari. Mm. And then they say, hey, you're doing games and all that. So all these people were talking and swapping ideas about their startups and this and that, and where you're going to get jobs at all the parties and weddings, everything, funerals, 
there was always tech talk mm -hmm. among people in the industry. And it was very informal back then. Some things haven't changed, it's still tech yeah. talk. Yeah, yeah. And, they were, and they were crazy. They were literally crazy. So you had, you had the NASA crowd, right, which is very like boots on the ground, right, yeah, straight. But then a lot of those guys, remember sci-fi fans? Mm. They so they loved when Star Wars came out, and, mm -hmm. you know Star Trek. I mean, a lot of the engineers here are like you know, grown-up boys, yeah, Star yeah. Trek and Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. And then they're into video games and Atari, and they're having a blast right after work mm -hmm. because work was so serious, right? You couldn't screw up in, in a NASA project or a Pentagon project, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Locked down, couldn't talk, top secretary, right? I mean, you couldn't talk about your work outside of companies. So what do you talk about? Atari games. Yeah, yeah. Right, because everybody can do it, right? So I think there was kind of this um, split between serious military, NASA, mm. and then the gaming world. And the gaming world was free. It was open, consumer, yeah. and it was the craziest, literally. All the hippies and all that, right, came down. And it was, you know, the block parties were, you know, grass, well, okay, pot and rock and roll, right? Yeah. Back in the 70s. So I remember the first um, parties, that the San Francisco crowd. So in their books, um, John Markoff wrote about, you know, what the Dormouse knew about the influence of the Summer of Love and the hippies on Silicon Valley. Yeah. Because remember, back then, computing was big iron, IBM, right? Yeah. The, and the PC was the rebel. So it was, it was okay, it was Darth Vader versus... The Jedi, and all the PC guys viewed themselves as the Jedi, battling this big gigantic thing, which was used to design nuclear bombs and to support the Vietnam War. Okay. So there was a double thing going on there, which is not only personal computing for your own stuff, but because PCs was about personal freedom, whereas the big mainframes were used for designing nuclear bombs at you know, Lawrence Livermore and sending our guys off to get killed in Vietnam. So it was a split world. That's why when, when I remember when the PC came on, it Ooh. was a rebellious statement. It was like protesting the Vietnam War because you weren't controlled by government, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't used for killing. And if you did the killing, people are, are also, and this is kind of the These dichotomy. These protests are still even happening today exactly. with tech companies, mm -hmm. workers that are saying mm -hmm. our, what we build will not be used for uh, military purposes. Right. Yeah. So, wow. But wow. see, the thing going on there is that there's this, it's still going on. It always will as long as we have a large military. But um, they say, well, these games are violent and killing. But that's really, if you think about it, it's kind of like releasing pressure because it's just a game. It's not, you know. Most of the time, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just imagination, right? Whereas in the real world, you're actually killing real people with drones in the military. So it's not make-believe there. Yeah. So people don't talk about that, though. They talk about the violence in games, but mm -hmm. they don't talk about the violence yeah. behind closed doors. And the doors. trust issues that right. are their first principle, the, right. the first principle thing is that we have trust issues across the planet, um, right. and that's why right. we have the massive military budgets. Um, right. So, so all the yeah. tech industries <clears throat> emerged from the militaries, and then not just the U.S. We just have the largest budget, that's all. Mm. Largest military budget. But all the nations around the world the military usually funds 
technical because they have the budgets. Yeah. And then security is important. I'm not. I'm not knocking security. I, you know, we need it. I mean, 9/11 is a good example. We need to have security. Otherwise, it's like a city without police. It's total anarchy. It's not a safe place. Well, so if we, we learned how right. to behave ourselves, right. that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If we can just evolve a right. little bit. Right. So, but I mean, it. it so there's. You could have, well, I hate to say it, citizens, but the danger without police, you have vigilantes. And then you know where that one goes, right? It goes the wrong way. So That's right. You, you, have, to have, <laughs> you have to have democratically elected officials who are in control of the police, just like the military, and so the people can control it, and so it's not some mob that controls it, because we saw that in history, and it's not pretty. So I think we, that's where this whole issue about trust and governance is very important. And I'm, I'm a policy wonk. I said political science and the use of power and all. And so I do respect... You, do you have faith in artificial intelligence to, to, to govern us, uh, as opposed um, to elected officials, which, as we can uh, oh, see, it's obvious that mm. uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a system that's gone amok, haywire. You know, mm -hmm. how can we follow the lead of our government? If we do, then we're, we're, we're okay. liars, cheats, and thieves. Okay, so AI is a tool or a weapon like any, a nuclear bomb or a gun, okay? It can be used for good or evil. Um, the danger is if you have unrestricted use of nuclear bombs and guns, yeah, it's a problem. And that's where we are with AI right now. It's not regulated at all from a policy point of view. We don't even know what we're using it for. See, that's the dangerous part. So I think that like nuclear weapons or gun control, we need to start saying this is very dangerous, potentially dangerous. So we need to have some governance, some rules, ethics to guide it. Because we know right off the bat, AI automatically embeds all the social biases and stereotyping in society. Because programmers by default are going to be biased. Right, so the big argument I've heard within the African American community is that it's always biased toward white people or men, not women, mm -hmm. because the programmers tend to be in that group. So mm -hmm. the AI just reflects the society right now. So we have to be aware that right, most of the AI is really biased and stereotyped. I mean, I wouldn't frankly trust it because it's so biased. In other words, if you're a human being saying what an AI machine's telling you, you would be basically ostracized from society because it's, it's um, reflecting all the biases that are in the society with no overview. Let's, right. let's, let's do a quick, um, mm -hmm. on the last couple minutes. Yes. I think um, we're all pointing to the same thing in the sense of uh, we, uh, our, our family values didn't scale, our social fabric mm -hmm. didn't, uh, uh, right. scale for like inclusive fitness over time right. and so we we entered into like a very self-dealing era mm -hmm. into right. yeah and so and so I think it all points to the kind of the same thing is that if we if our family value scaled over time right. and our social fabric right. ended up being really robust across the civilization across the whole world we wouldn't need massive military budgets we wouldn't need right. this this right. the, the the systems that we have today right. that are that in many ways mm -hmm. are not representing all people and we could mm -hmm. have more reliance on the tools that we build like artificial intelligence to help us out mm -hmm. so let's um let's go because this is city okay yeah yeah let's keep going the city. so we're talking about the evolution of silicon valley um then you ended up also uh 
doing the market research in the semiconductor space in the mm -hmm. 80s. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then also um, internet corporate consulting in the 90s, mm -hmm. actually advising over 900 tech companies worldwide. Right. Right. That's crazy. Okay. And so what was, like, what was going on around that time worldwide with the tech boom? Well, the, we saw the rise of Japan during the 80s when the Japan threat challenged us. And then right after that, Taiwan came on and then the Four Tigers and then China and India in that order. So we saw a shift. When I started DataQuest in the early 80s, the industry was focused on the Atlantic, US and the Europeans. Mm -hmm. In five to seven years, it shifted to Asia. The Pacific. Yeah, yeah, it was the center of gravity just moved over. You know, for example, the uh, mem uh, memory chips, the Japanese went from 30% market share in, in the middle of eight, 1981 to 70% in 18 months. Yeah, wow. that, fast. yeah that fast. So that's why AMB National um, said only the paranoid survived because they almost got put out of business by the Japanese memory chip companies. Right. So the shift happened really fast during the 80s from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and yeah. that was before China. And then you have now the expansion with China and India. So it's moving faster even in that direction now um, because India has a surplus of tech people, for example. So. It's going to be, if you think we've seen acceleration, you haven't seen anything yet. When oh, two yeah. billion people come on, India and China. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. And most of them are pretty smart and two technically savvy. Two billion yeah. people. Okay. Yeah. So, Belt and uh, Road Initiative, Africa coming online mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Even without the government, just two billion people. Okay. So let's say the Chinese government was like the U.S. government said, we'll do whatever you want. That wants to We'd live and eat like the United States. Yeah, we would yeah, be yeah. totally overwhelmed by Chinese and Indian technology overnight because you know, there's so many smart people there now and they're tech savvy. So people are thinking in the past. So this, and then the challenge is going to be, one, they can't live like Americans, otherwise they'll just burn up the earth overnight because you know the carbon emissions from the US per person is five percent of the population and twenty five percent of the energy consumption. Right, right. Yeah. On the other hand that status if pe yeah, yeah, if, yeah if the rest of these two two billion want to start consuming energy yeah, it's not energy. gonna work. Not, yeah. It doesn't work. Now on the other hand that's opportunity. So yeah it if is yeah. I would argue now we're at the end of one cycle. But we know like PCs and you know like Silicon Valley as we know it now. It's over. People don't realize it's over. Where do you over. think we're going from the okay. PCs? So it's called the fossil fuel era, which was the 20th century. Mm -hmm. It was a boon, it was mm -hmm. a pain. It's over. People don't realize it's already over. And what's coming is a renewable or cyclical society because we can't keep doing fossil fuels. Um, and the growth opportunities in technology and everything is going to be renewable, cyclical, green. So 21st century is... It's going to be green, all green. It's all green, be. It's renewables. Everything. But it's going to move really fast. And people think it's going to take 25, 30 years. Uh-uh. The Chinese and Indians are moving in real time. They're going to move in real time with the technologies, the AI, VR, everything, real time. Do you think that has also to do with their strategy of, of not having a, a political uh, gridlock of two parties? versus their more a, a, a greater agility with moving with the government and yes the corporations? Yes and no. This compared China, which is highly centralized control, versus India, which is kind of chaotic. 
yeah, it's in terms of public infrastructure, yes, China is quote an easier model because you know you government decides and there's no such thing as eminent domain is take you out and then put it in and it's done right no citizen protest no opposition okay which is scary too right yeah. but that's the Chinese approach yeah I call it, we call it the bulldozer approach mm -hmm. the other approach which is it's the cathedral and the bazaar concept so if China's the cathedral which is centrally controlled then the bazaar, which is like India, which is more like a free-going democracy with a lot of arguing and all, can work, but it tends to work better in software, notice? But in infrastructure, India is terrible in terms of, it's way behind China in terms of roads and highways and bullet trains and everything. Yeah, so, okay. Um, okay. so the bazaar does what? It enables the Okay, so yeah, the bazaar is better for capitalism. Okay. It's individually based. There's very little government control, or you know, at least in a. F so, a pure bazaar would be a, f a free capitalism, unrestrained. Okay, whereas the Chinese model is government controlled. It's socialist or communist, where government controls everything. The trade-off is you get really, you get bullet trains, you get all the free and all the nice buildings and everything. You're advanced, and the, the trade-off is. is you don't have control, there's no citizen input, and the government could make the wrong decisions like ghost cities. Oh yeah, that, right? yeah. Because there is no input. Yeah. So that's the downside of that. On the other hand, you have the India model, which is more free going and bizarre, people do what they want. It's really good in software development, better than China, because it's not restricted and more free flows internationally. The, the problem there is they underinvest in public infrastructure like roads and highways. Interesting. So, you know, okay. Okay. there's trade offs for both of them. Now, the ideal world, okay, that would be hard though, would be a democracy like India more, which, but with the discipline of the Chinese in the public infrastructure, roads yeah. and highways and all that. So, the, yeah, to find the good in um, the best, yeah, both in the models. systems and so the So, it's models. a public private model public-private partnership. So, in an, um, people are into ideology. Say, they talk about capitalism, post-capitalism, you know, and, com and communism. Really, if you look at it on a pragmatic level, an urban planning level, it's public-private. So, capitalism tends to be private-driven. You know, business, individual decisions destroy it. Consumers destroy decisions, okay? So, it's very free, it's really fast. You create a lot of wealth. But unrestricted, you have a mess. We call them externalities, pollution, yeah, yeah. all sorts of problems. Yeah. The public model is really good for, like I'm an urban planner for building highways and roads and all that, beautiful parks, like Golden Gate Park. That wasn't done by capitalism. Golden Gate Park was by the city. And so grateful for that foresight, so, yeah. So San Francisco, take San Francisco. If we had a capitalist model, it would look like a slum. A, a really bad slum though. I mean, the whole thing would be a mess. If because we had the city and they said we're going to do certain things like the Presidio for the army and then shift mm -hmm. it over and then Golden Gate Park, we have, the thing. we have all these parks and certain amount of public land, we have a, a fairly beautiful city despite all the problems in between. Okay, And you can argue that like homelessness is, is a failure of the system both public, actually I would argue um, Everybody thinks it's caused by capitalism. It's not. Homelessness is the problem. Is poor public finance and um, governance. 
And I'm an urban planner, okay? So, for example, Sa and it's not just San Francisco. We're just one of the worst cases because we have it concentrated and it's easier to take pictures of movies of San Francisco downtown than LA where it's all scattered. It makes for better video. But um, the problem in public finance is that cities are competing to create, to attract jobs, which are revenues and taxes, but they don't like the costs, which are housing, because housing requires schools, public services, roads, it's all cost. So if you look at the Bay Area, Palo Alto and all down the peninsula, they all want thousands and thousands of high paying jobs, they don't build any housing. And that's why we have a two hour commute and homelessness. If the cities were truly interested for every job or every uh, 10 jobs they would hire, they would build one or two um, apartments or housing. So you wouldn't have to drive like two hours. Yeah. But see, that's a failure of public finance. The cities decide that, not the individuals, not businesses. Yeah, so, yeah. so I think that's where, you know. Um, this really does come together on an urban planning w way. It's, it's that. We, right. we, we really have to realize that by, by calling in to thousands and tens of thousands of jobs into the, right. um, the centers that we do right. need a massive housing developments to prevent uh, egregious commutes. But also that, right. um, that we got to also diversify potentially ourselves away from mega cities as well. Right. Something about mega cities right. is like just, it kind of is concrete jungle-esque. I right. think we'll end up talking a bit about that um, down the line. I'll yes. need to remember to, to bring up the, some of the mega city yes. stuff in a bit. Um, you taught us that a lot of tech was moving from Atlantic trade to Pacific trade. Mm -hmm. Then in 2000s, there was a period for you where you had um, seven of your 15 startups got funding while the average is only one of a mm -hmm. thousand during that time. Mm -hmm. um, one went public, Audience Inc., and that did sound, sound in Android phones. Mm -hmm. Right. And so teach us about that time in the 2000s, what was going on in the Valley, your companies being funded, how you were, how were you, how were you managing um, all of that as well? Well, I mean, after 2000, I mean, well, we probably lost a quarter million people who left town because they got laid off. So I remember people just leaving town in droves. Um, San Francisco was dead. <laughs> 2001, and I remember 2010, it was after the 2008 crash. You could walk down Market Street and hardly see people. Like it was in 2001 and two, and, and, and then 2010 or nine. So Whoa. after both crashes, I was always walking around San Francisco because I was living in Santa Cruz at the time. Yeah. But I'd come to the city, it was like ghost town. It was ghost town. Ghost town. And um, everybody said, well, the last person turned the lights out in San Francisco because there are no jobs and they did, nobody could see the future. They said there is no future for San Francisco. I remember Whoa. that. And we were all going, where's the future? So it was really funny. I was doing a market research for Hitachi Data Systems on utility computing. So I talked to ATT, all the big boys, because they're the only people surviving. And then I said, hey, do you know any other startups? Oh, yeah, there's a little company called Salesforce.com downtown in Morton Market. I go, what do they do? He goes, I know, some kind of weird internet thing. So I walked down and I got to meet you with the CTO. And I walk in, and the whole old ATT data center was empty. And I said, so where are your servers? You go, oh, that one in the corner? It was like this big? That's our server. Uh, okay. Huh. I said, where's your team? He goes, oh, it's around the corner. So I walk around the corner, there's a little round table, five engineers programming, and he goes, welcome to Salesforce. And I went, 
Are you kidding? So what do you guys do? And he goes, SaaS. And what's that? The software service. And what's that? He goes, you know, service. Yeah. He goes, we sell software directly off service. I said, oh, I get it. So what's your goal? Eliminate software. I said, said Microsoft. He goes, got it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I asked him. I said, how many, you know, um, customers do you have? Seventy-five hundred. I go, what? How do you do that? And he goes, we should have fifteen thousand, but our productivity is bad, so we're going to double it. Three thousand per engineer. I went, got it. So I told all my angel and VC friends. I said. This is a really cool company. They're doing SaaS. What's yeah. SaaS? Yeah. Well, whatever. It's all for the service. Whatever that is. And then they said, Sheridan, get out of here. Yeah. We're not going to invest in startups in, in, in the internet because that's the fastest way to lose money. money yeah. okay. So, okay. Now, mind you, I'd seen AOL, Dell, Yahoo, Google because I worked at Stanford earlier, nine, ten years earlier. And I got excited when I saw AOL, Dell, Yahoo, Google, Skype, all those guys. I saw all of them when there were a couple of guys. Yeah. And they know I advise VCs, right? And they know I saw those top chip companies. So they know I've seen all the coolest companies in chip history in Silicon Valley, plus all the internet guys. They still didn't listen. I said, no, put, get, invest in Salesforce. They said, no, Sharon, we're not going to touch it. So none of them invested first round in Salesforce. Because <laughs> yeah. they said, nah, internet, get out of here. We don't want to invest. So I said, okay. So I said, but you're missing it because this is the future of the Bay Area. And yeah. they, yeah, and they go, right, Sheridan, of course. So I remember that. It was, so anyway, the, and then. SaaS and cloud compute. Who would have seen What is that? Yeah, yeah. What is that? Yeah. And, then, and, then, and then I saw all these startups because I'm always looking around. And then because I've done a lot of startups, they all say, hey, Sheridan, what do you think of the startup? So uh, what's this one called? It's called Twitter. So, well, they do. So check it out. So I go to Twitter. It's a tweet, 140 characters. And I said, I said, that's really cool. And they said, Sheridan, why do I care what my friend ate for breakfast? I said, well, if you're a cereal company. No, Sheridan, get out of here. It's like a total waste of time. I said, no, think about it. You can do whatever you want. Like headlines, like what? Like sports, news, whatever. He says, Sheridan, when you see something serious, let us know. So all the angels of BC's passed on Twitter. And then later, a couple of years later, I saw another company called Pinterest. And my woman friends told me, because they said, hey, Sharon, there's this cool company. All of us women are on it. I said, OK, what are they doing? He goes, they're putting post pictures. And then they had nylons and socks. And I'm like, OK, so it's cool for this woman, right? And then they said, hey, why don't you create a page on there? Pinterest had me, because like, I'm a guy. This is all for women. So I was one of the first guys to create a Pinterest page. Yeah. And I had guy stuff, right? Hiking yeah. and all this yeah. stuff and surfing. And then all of them, hey, you're cool. And I'm going, yeah, except this, the discussion's all about nylons no, and socks, yeah. right? So I, again, I went to my angel and VC friends. I said, hey, what, there's this really cool startup company. I go, okay, sure, what's it called? Because I get excited all the time when I see cool companies. And they said, it's called Pinterest. They go, so guess what? All my VC friends, all guys, of course, yeah. they're going to go, they go, dude, that's a girl's site. Like, it's just like pictures. I said, no, 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 no. It's really serious. He goes, look at dude. Like, you can just put anybody put a photo. I mean, you don't get it. Woman shop. Do you understand? That's what they're doing. They're sharing pictures. He says, Sheridan, and they all told me, when you see something serious, serious. Let, let us know. Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> and they all passed. Yeah, yeah. And then, then after, and that happened all through the 2000s. It's hard to have foresight and predict the future like that. Yeah. No, but all the women are on it, though. Oh, but you could tell that there was high demand for these things. Oh, yeah, because the women are all excited about it. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I, I said, hey, Sharon, what's the secret? I said, oh, it's really simple. Woman shop, any more questions? Now, 
people, I went to a social marketing event. It was really kind of fun. But one I think woman. It's something in the upwards of like 80% of uh, buying decisions. That's correct. So here are the numbers, okay? So the US economy is on maybe $20 trillion. 70% is consumer, right? So it's $14 trillion. What percent is decided by the American woman? 80? 80. Oh, so eight. Okay, so. Damn. Yeah, 14 crazy. times 80% is what? Nine point something trillion? 9.2 trillion. 55% of the U.S. economy is decided by women. Now, this one sort You can kind of see this with your, with your friends. It's right. just like, it's like when you look at your the way that your, maybe your guy friends are making right. decisions, it's less so maybe in the right. realm of like going to purchase things. Right. Um, and I think everyone, including women, is moving towards experiences as well, right, um, right. rather than even materials. Well, men are more impulsive buyers, like cowboys. They go in there to get what they need and walk out. Women are like pack hunters. So they all talk. <laughs> they talk. They share and they know all the best yeah. deals. Right. So it's interesting. So this one social marketing woman in San Francisco says, you know the difference between B2B and B2C? I said, no. It goes, B2B takes two years to get to sell for the big companies. You know, to yeah, yeah. it takes a, a long time, yeah. And if you're a startup, maybe a couple of months, okay? B2C's how long for B2C sales? <laughs> Instant. Okay, and like how, how long? The decision right away. Okay, yeah. so the baby boomer woman, like 50 years, average time on the site is seven seconds. And if you don't grab them at seven, they're gone and they never come back. They That's have seven crazy. seconds. That's crazy. And then what is it for millennials? Two seconds. Two, two and a half seconds millennials max. Millennials are quick. Yeah. yeah. So crazy. they said, and then so here's the question. If you're a, a B2C retail guy, a CEO, a 50-year-old guy, what is the odds that you'll understand what a 20-year-old woman is going to decide in two seconds? Zero. Yeah. And yeah. then some they said, go to the shopping malls. What percent of the people are online, or, I mean, on the shops are for women? I said, 80% of the shops. What do the men look like in the malls? He goes, oh, kind of bored. And he goes, we call them zombies in the retail market. Why? Because they're so out of it. They don't even yeah, know yeah. what they, because they're like, you know, so what do you, so they would always say, what do you, why do you think online would be any different than the shopping mall? <laughs> yeah. Now here's the thing though, when, when we talk about climate change now, okay, remember, 55% of the consumer decision decided in seconds by woman, nine and a half, 10, 11 trillion dollars, and look at it globally now. Do you know what that means if they're all on mobile and, and these women are deciding in seconds? Do you know what that means to any company that they don't like? You could literally sink a company overnight. Yeah. Because all the one talk and they'll be on social media. Yeah. So the stock could literally go like this overnight. Yeah. If they don't think you, they like you. This is another one of the reasons why there's a lot of power in the, in the, in the woman's control on decisions on where right. the trajectory of our world okay. goes. Couple quick thoughts right. is that you you were okay. giving us you're giving us um, some of the some of the cr the craziness of what was going on with some of the missed opportunities what people didn't see back in the 2000s mm -hmm. um, also what was happening with buying decisions I mean I I, I know that what um, I was mentioning earlier about mega cities mm -hmm. this is this seems um, to be the designs that we're going towards in the future that we really want to see more of right. and that. We want to see less of the concrete jungles that right. have so much yes. um, of also disastrous trauma embedded mm -hmm. in humans mm -hmm. that 
there's all this type of stuff that we okay right. let's let's hit on this quick you also started the silicon valley global network right. as well and that was um a form to promote entrepreneurship via global collaboration and that has over fifty thousand members yes yeah, like uh, no eighty 85,000 members. Yeah. members now. Mm -hmm. I remember I joined in like 2015 yes, and yeah. it was just back then it was so much less right. and it just keeps growing mm -hmm. and it's incredible seeing how that's grown. That link's in the bio everyone. Go check that out. There's a lot of great um, global collaboration that's mm -hmm. happening in that global network. And then the book as well, The Untold Stories from a Silicon Valley Insider right. and the Valley of right. Digital Dreams. What were the massive failures and grand slams? Were those the ones okay. that you kind of started listening okay. for us a so little bit? Okay, so here are the two ones. I, I feel bad about it, but they were my clients. I was doing emerging technologies at DataQuest, so I had all these corporate accounts, and then later I did it too, but on my own as a consultant. So the biggest failures in history was Kodak and DEC equipment. So in the mid-80s, um, I would go to Rochester, and they'd say, hey, Sheridan, what's hot in Silicon Valley? Tell us, what's the future for Kodak? So all during the 80s, like 84 5, I'd say, digital cameras. And they said, what? I said, you know, Japan, they got digital cameras. So the future of Kodak is digital photography. And he said, Sheridan, you don't understand our business. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, we're a film company. Do you understand that? We're not a digital camera company. I said, oh, no, you're, you're an analog film company today, but in the future, it'll be all digital. <laughs> and he goes, like, what percent? I said, oh, maybe 99.9%, .9 and the film will be more like, you know, rare photos. Yeah. And they said, you seriously think that we're gonna go to digital cameras like Japanese? I said, uh, you have no choice. When are you gonna make the move? And they said, well, how long do we have? I said, I'll put this way. You have to start now because the digital photography, the, the electronics is pretty sophisticated, but totally unlike film. You gotta be in Silicon Valley, right? So you should probably set up an operation here to do your chips and all that here, and maybe collaborate with Japanese, and then, but you have maybe 10 years and if you don't figure it out by 1995, it's over. The game's over, and 2000, you're bankrupt. Damn. And they said, you sure? I said, trust me. And they never listened. I go, oh, well. So I, I knew, I actually, before it went bankrupt, I already knew that 15 years ahead of time. I, I was watching it go under, and I was just going, you can't force a horse to drink water. Yeah. So deck, same thing, digital equipment. Remember the mini frame? They were my client. Emerging. Digital equipment? Di um, no, um, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC. DEC. Yeah. Digital so Equipment Corporation. Some Boston. They had um, 120,000 employees. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So then they were my account, the Emerging Tech team in Hudson, Mass. So I used to fly in there after going to Rochester. And they would say, hey, sure, what's the future? And I said, $10,000 workstations. Why that? Because our million, we sell million, quarter million dollar, million dollar computers. And I said, well, now you do, but you don't have a chance because there's a kid named my, uh, um, Scott McNeely from Stanford Business School. He just started a company called Sun, and the workstation was $10,000. So that's your competition. And they go, Sheridan, you don't understand us. I go, okay, what do I understand? We're a VMX company. I said, no, that's a closed system. His open, and open will be closed. And he said, Sheridan, we started quarter million dollars. I said, right now, but in the future, you're going to be at 10,000 if you want to survive. Yeah. Okay? So I said, look, set up a workstation, compete with Scott McNeely while you still have money. Yeah. Right? All the 80s. Seven years later, they laid off, when they shut down, they laid off all 120,000 people, totally destroyed the computer industry in Boston, right? That was my account. 
And I knew that. I warned them all the 80s, both of them. Wow. But, and so, you know, you can't force companies. And then later, you know, Harvard Business School professor wrote, you know, Clayton Christensen wrote, you know, the disruptive technology in the 90s based on the, those disruptions. So he wrote about it 10 years after I did because, you know, academics have to have data. Whereas I was doing forecasting, saying, here's what to avoid. Whereas he wrote about, here's what, well, here are the mistakes in past tense. These examples are important for young people because we don't necessarily um, take get out of our uh, 25 or 35 or even 15 year old uh, time scale right. often enough. Right. But to understand what Silicon Valley used to look like, these mistakes that were made, how to not repeat mm -hmm. these mistakes, how to right. work towards a global cohesion. Right. Even looking back on a big history time scale, we always like trying to get people to think of right. the evolution of our species over even all yes. six million years. Right. Um, okay, let's hit on um, the, uh, the massive grand slams as well. Right. Okay, so one was saving Intel. So Intel is my account at DataQuest, the senior VP, reporting to the Troika, Moore, Grove, and you know. So, you know, the Japanese took out their memory business, right? So they were going, and so uh, the senior VP called me and the boss, my, my manager, and said, guys, uh, I gotta have lunch with you today. So we were in Milpitas, and he dropped the, the bomb on us. He says, guys, just not go out of this room. You're the only two people outside. There's only six of us in the world who know. The Troika, me, and the two of you. Do not say a word. We're going under. Intel's going under in six months. Four to six months, we're going bankrupt. And I like, I, I, we all choked on our lunch. And then we, for the next hour, and we met three or four weeks in a row, and he's just telling us how bad it was bleeding and, and uh, Wall Street didn't know they were that close. And so Gordon Moore and everybody said, well, Sheridan and Gene were the Asia Japanese semiconductor service. We knew the competition, right? So they said, yeah, so what does DataQuest think? And I remember I was going, God, this is pretty depressing. So my boss turns to me, goes, what do you think? I should have asked him first. I said, well, look, at, they already lost the memory chip market, right? So they should, I know it's hard, lay off 70% of the people in the memory department and focus on microprocessors because the PC's coming, coming, be number one in the world in process and don't look back. Hmm. And then my boss wow. said, that's what I was thinking too. So wow. what happened was, <laughs> Whoa. so then we told Ron, Ron goes, okay, what's the verdict from DataQuest? And, and, and my boss goes, Sheridan and I both great. Shut down memory tomorrow, focus on processors. And you know what Ron goes, are you sure? He goes, yeah, we think that. So he calls, back a couple of hours later, and he goes, guys, we can't do it. The Troika says, Wall Street will go nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They will never allow us to do that. And then my boss's famous classic response was, well, tell Andy and, and, and you know, all the guys there, look, we think it's a no-brainer. You can shut down 70% of the company tomorrow or the whole company in six months. Mm. You don't have a choice. And he goes, why do you say that? He goes, well, we're putting together the $5 billion one megabit DRAM strategy for Samsung. So if you get past the six Japanese, Samsung's coming with billions. Yeah. You don't have a chance. You're already roadkill. So double down on microprocessors. So then, so then, yeah, that's your only chance. So 
I remember the funny call. So Ron goes, wow, that's pretty depressing. So he goes back. The next morning, the call comes in, and Ron comes in, and my boss pulls me in. And he goes, and he goes okay, guys. I pitched the guy, the Troika, and he said, if DataQuest says we don't have a chance, we're going for it. We're going for microprocessors. Don't tell anybody. So I went, yes, we, we convinced him. So what happened was, he goes, loose lips and ships, don't say for two or three weeks, said nothing in the front page news, man. It's just Intel, like, and Wall Street went nuts, and all the reporters are calling us, and we pretend we didn't know anything, right? And then um, for the next year, Intel sent in their microprocessors guys, and we coached them on a, how to become number one in, PC, in uh, microprocessors, how to do the market strategy and everything. So we did that, and then they turned around. So then later when Ron came in, my boss said, Ron, congratulations to you and the Troika, greatest turnaround in business history in the United States. And that's why Andy Grove wrote, only the paranoid survive, because they almost went under. And but so I was really kind of happy, because my boss says, hey, we saved Intel. Not bad, huh? And we did. We saved them, because they were going to stay with memories, and they would have been gone. Intel, as we know, would be gone. Wow. Would not exist. Yeah, what a story. That was the biggest grand slam we've ever had. Then I was involved in Nokia's launch and AMD and all these others, like big ones, you know. But We'll, we'll have to um, revisit more of the Silicon Valley um, yeah. stories with you again right. on another session. There's so much good stuff there, Sheridan. Wow, wow. It's important to tell these stories. It's so yeah. important. Um, so you wrote several books, a VR series and novels, and then launched launching the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th companies right, right. now. Yeah. Um, one of them is One Reality, which creates mm -hmm. VR models of sustainable cities. Um, you visited Sweden in 2008 and 2009, and then you noticed that like, the really Sweden and the Nordics care a lot about these sustainable cities. Mm -hmm. Currently building models for Copenhagen, Stockholm, Lund, and Malmo. Yes. And so let's, um, this is using the um, uh, Unreal VR, VR gaming, gaming engine. Mm -hmm. Okay, and this is taking Copenhagen from a macro view in the right. first one. So you're immersing, is this like global city leaders, environmentalists? Um, Every, anybody. Anybody that they want, they can wear right. virtual reality mm -hmm. and see what the yep. future of right. Stockholm can look like. Yeah, because in a nor well, a little background there, um, the yes. company has been using virtuality for 20 years when we had million dollar machines and hundred thousand dollar headsets. But now we could do it on laptops, yes. and, you know, cheap headsets, same thing because of the NVIDIA chips. And they're so powerful. So what we do is we use, sort of like what Google does, but we don't use Google Earth because that's, you can't control it and you can't get the data. So we have our own Earth, which is, you know, they're a commodity now. The scan in satellite data is a commodity. So we have a scan, um, Copenhagen Malmo port, which is a you know, billion dollar port. They're um, a public agency on behalf of the city's Malmo and Copenhagen to generate revenues for the city through port management. So it's like San Francisco Airport or Long Beach Airport, you know, um, port. So what they did is they wanted to use virtuality for their marketing initially, and then they wanted to use it uh, later for other purposes. So what they were trying to do is to show the Chinese ship container companies how how the new port would look. Because what happened was there was a uh, there's a boom in um, tourism. And they were mixing the tourist ships with the container ships in the port, which is really crazy. So they were thinking, why don't we just bring the tourists right into town and then move 
and open up a new port to the south just for the containers because they don't need to be in the middle of town and just separate the two. So they wanted to visualize it. So what they had on um, Copenhagen... Yeah, let's pull, let's pull back up the first one again. So they have all the... The, the port actually had all the satellite data. They had all the GIS data. They had... They don't show it here, but they had all the utility data. They had the planes coming in out of the planes, the trucks, the trains, the sewer, the water, everything. Whoa. And so we can visualize all that. All and that of was, that being visualized. Right. Because the Copenhagen Malmo port controls not only the airport, but all urban development on 50 miles, Denmark and the Sweden side, both sides, mm -hmm. everything, housing, everything. So you do and not- You bring up a critical point, which is just that when we look at this from the sky, we're not thinking about all of the infrastructures underneath of the ground, yep. the plumbing, the electrical, right. all that type of stuff. So what they, we, we actually built the underground. So we go underneath Copenhagen and we can see the water and sewage going through the pipes in VR. That's it's great, cool. yeah, yeah. Because they have the data. Now, if you, it's stored data, but because we can accelerate the flow, but if you have real-time data, then you can see it in real-time using IoT yes. sensors. It's just, you know, hooking it up. So you can do both. And then this is the macro level. So this, what we do is we take the static images, which is, and then we had a drone, so we took our own drone, like a little, with an iPad, and then a little drone, and we flew over a Copenhagen port. We captured the whole port yeah. with higher resolution with our drone, our own cameras, and we did it in one hour. And we just overlay it over the, because of the satellite imagery, which tends to be fuzzier because it's shot from you know too so high up. So you're overlaying the overlay. satellite with drone imagery for an even Google crisper. does. Yeah, it's, we get high res cameras like Google does when you drive down the street or you do a drone and you overlay. Otherwise, what happens is all your walls are kind of fuzzy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the streets are fuzzy. Gotcha. So when we scan it in the drone, it's super clear. Yeah. And it's like being there. So we do that. We overlay. And that gives us the static world, the existing world now, and then the fun starts. Okay. So then we start adding planes, cars, trains. Yeah. Okay. So we could show, we could add any moving object because remember we're using a gaming engine and all our yes. guys are gamers. Yes. So they think buildings are boring because they're static, whereas gamers like action. So they like to add trains, cars, planes, clouds. Correct. Then we could do storms, flooding, whatever you want. So you can simulate what it's like to have a storm and then where the water runoff goes. We do that all like the that. time. Yeah. So one of the things we did was sea rise. So we took Copenhagen Port. You can stand, you can zoom down to any block and then we run it one foot per second and we put Copenhagen under 40 feet of water in 40 seconds. So you're standing there watching the whole city disappear from yeah. any angle from any angle it's yeah. kind of it's really depressing when you see it because it's scary to watch so you're building the vr models all the way down to the street level as well right in, so you take inside. it from the macro and then we go all the way down to the street level yes. as well as the guts underneath the ground yeah we have the underground too from the city because we have the gis data and all their infrastructure data they supplied it to us the city supplied it and the port. And they want this because they want to know how to build their future city. Yeah, they could do anything they want. So for example, now they have this, then um, we, we could design, um, and I'll show you in the next pictures, but we design new communities and everything. And then here's what we do. So in Lund, across the strait, the Europeans are putting two synchrotrons. There's no, no housing, so we're adding Oh, 10,000 uh, housing for 10,000 people, okay. researchers. 
Okay. Then there'll be international research coming in. And then there's a light rail because okay. they don't want to rely on in cars to go to the research park. Yeah. So you could see this is how we use VR. So all the black areas, all existing satellite data for the existing area. Okay. And then we have in the open fields, now we're starting to play. It's like a Legos. The we're, oranges you're added. We're adding new, the new town, the urban design at the macro level. So we could, what we want to do is lay out to see how everything fits at the macro level first. Yeah. All right? And then, you know, where the train should go. So we kind of play around with urban planning. We do this all the time. Should the housing be over here, the entry this way, this way? How will the, you know, parking, stores, shops, everything. You know, we kind of lay out. And it takes a while to figure out the right layout. Yes. You know, where the shopping malls, this and that. And so you reduce the traffic and carbon and everything, right? So that's what we do at the macro level. Then we, then we go to the micro level, which is even closer. Okay, and that's the next video. Okay, so then, now, the orange buildings, now we take, and we just give the orange boxes to the architects. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then, okay, got it. And then Those they, are the same orange buildings that are going to be coming up. Right. So this is, this is that same light rail you were just showing us in the right. last image right. where these are the new housing right. developments for the researchers. Right. Coming. So what happens is this is the next step. So we gave the orange boxes, and they say, okay, it's roughly here, but it's not even designed. And then the architects who's assigned for that block, they take it, and then they start doing their thing in AutoCAD, you know, the, yeah. the CAD models. Yes. So they design it all. They do inside-outside with the BIM models, yep. and then we just drop them right in. Oh, you just drop them right in from there? Into the VR model, we oh, just drop great. it right in. It's so that, that easy? Oh, we just drop, drop it in. Drop it right into the VR from. model. Yeah, we just drop it in. So, and then many of the VR, well, many of the architectural firms in the Bay Area, like Gensler and all, are starting with BIM models, which are real popular for the inside of the building, but now they're using VR because you could do the street scenes and everything. Okay, and the other thing about virtuality is that we could do dynamic models, action, and everything, avatars, everything, uh, yeah. storms. Yeah. You can't do that with BIM. BIM. BIM is good for static buildings. Buildings, That's sure. It. sure. Okay. But so then we take the BIM as like the template. Okay. Okay. So if you say, here's the building, it's done by an architecture firm, then what we can do is fly from outer space, if we had the model, yeah. we could go right into the floor, go onto the elevator, go up to the third floor, go up and turn on the lights, turn open the kitchen door, open the refrigerator door, we have the stereo sound going on, we got the lights, we have the time tracking for any day of the year in history. Whoa, yeah. And then what we do is we, then the fun starts for us because that's aesthetic. So what we do is we start adding the cool sound design. Yeah. We start plants, we, we drop the avatars in, so you walk in there and maybe we have a party going on. We have all of these avatars, they're all like dancing, having fun, talking. And then with AI, we could train the avatars. So you could do whatever you want. So that's more the gaming element, which is um, if you look at cities as place and people. Yes. Virtuality for architects is mostly place, buildings. Uh -huh. yeah. uh -huh. And that's interesting. For us, it's more about people, which is people, buildings, um, landscaping, because we do all the landscaping. Yeah, yeah. And, oh. then, and then disasters, weather, Let's let's hit that one in a moment. Right. Let's, so we're going from the right. we're going from macro views of future cities, mm -hmm. um, 
um, from drone data plus satellite data, mm -hmm. um, also into the data that you got from the cities on mm -hmm. um, their infrastructures right. that are below right. the ground as right. well, mm -hmm. all the way from macro into street view views. Right. And on the street view views, you can go all the way into um, just plop the CAD designs right. of exactly. buildings right into the VR um, situation. Yep. And you go into the buildings. So, yeah, and, 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 so, and so this is interesting because as you make developments for new researchers that are coming in, you have to make show how you want the blocks arranged, where you want right. the businesses, exactly. all that type of stuff, right. the transit systems. Right. Then it can take them even a step further. It's like, well, here's what your apartment's going to look like. You can yep. go in your building. And we sell furniture floor, too. We can drop furniture. Drop furniture in, yep. show the other social aspects of mm -hmm. other avatars in there. Here's That's the right. other researchers' mm -hmm. avatars from mm -hmm. other places in the world. This is what this mm -hmm. experience is going to be like mm -hmm. for you. Right. And then have the sound design, like you said, all those other mm -hmm. aspects. Right. to it and then just on this last part you just said about disaster relief so that if things happen like uh, massive storms or or uh, or any type of other earthquake or mm -hmm. uh, tornadoes or disasters mm -hmm. that it's easy for you to be able to simulate what that looks like the to the city right. right okay yeah so for example on this one we did a, a hurricane like if we were in Miami and we had the hurricane, and, and you can just moderate. So 50, 100, 150, 200 miles an hour, and you just ramp it up. Damn. And then you could say which direction's the wind coming in. Say, so say from this direction, and you put in, and then what's scary to watch is when it hits about 170 to 200 miles an hour, the trees start tipping and all the, the buildings and the roofs start tearing off and flying all over the place. Because, you know, we're, it's, they're based on the physics engine and Unreal is really good. Yeah. So it's very realistic. It's based on real physics. It's not make believe. And then you can add atmospheric models to that to make it even better. So, but we simulated that. We did the sea rise one. Yeah. We did um, flooding. So we could have like a big flood, take it out with 10 foot waves coming through there if you yeah, want. Yeah. We do that. We can have fires. We can have explosions. Because remember, they're gamers. Yeah, so yeah, gamers, correct, correct. gamers Things love like action. Yeah, yeah. So we have that's where the gamers start bringing it to life. So this is for disaster preparedness planning. Um, so for example, if the police fire and everybody wants to see what might happen, like the ghost fire, what might happen if a building catches on fire? What do we need to do? Bring our assets and our teams and the trucks and all. And they could simulate the whole thing. So for example, if there's a fire, we could say, okay, we could then bring in the fire chief with his VR, just like Legos, he just moves his trucks around, or her trucks around, and then they could simulate the fire. So they could do a firefighting simulation. Yeah. And we do that. Yeah. So then they say, okay, here's, or we have, we drop some foam on top. We had firefighters, they go into the building with their virtual fire hose, and they're putting out the fire right there. Yep, yep. So we could simulate the whole fire. And the firefighting. And the training process Everything. for it, yeah. And that's the real use of VR is for the, is training. Um, and it's, but multi-agency. Yeah. So we had the fire, police, water, medic, and everybody can look at it together. And then they could replay it to say, and then we, we want to do contests. So for example, if a fire happens, the winners save all the lives and the least damage. The losers lose 200 people and the building goes up. So you gamify it by saying how many lives and how much property can you save. That's the game. So remember, it's a gaming engine. And um, for example, many of these, the gamer developers who are coming out, of, they mostly come out of Unity, because that's where 98% of the gamer developers are now. 
but they're moving to Unreal 2. And we could also do it in Unity, either way. But they are now moving into enterprise and cities. And the differences in the game world is nice, but it's fantasy land. It's just all make-believe. When we're doing this, is for real. These cities are actually coming up. They're going to sink yes. concrete. Um, what we do, the, the, and so the plan is to go from the Nordics and continue doing city future of city mm -hmm, um, developments right. with governments, private organizations, right. these types of things around right. the world. Right. Okay. And, and and the hope is is that when you have um, VR models of future of cities, right. that then the cities that are built are more intelligent. They're smarter cities. They're more sustainable cities. Right. They give people a more immersive experience into what it looks like to be living there. Right. These types of things. So then one of the problems for public hearings is they usually have the meetings at 2 in the afternoon and nobody can because they're attend because they're going to work. What I think the future is is that you could put the models online yeah. and then at home every citizen or anybody in the world could go walk around the community around and there. see what's proposed and then leave you know, post-it notes like comments. Comments so on it comments and uh, I think that's where citizen participation in the future is going to be more online because you can't go to the meetings but in VR you could be anywhere and just like walk around in it and then you don't need a VR headset what's it's a myth so we do most of our um, uh, you're modeling right on the computer on our tablet we do mostly tablets yeah and laptops VR just immerses you into it but you can see the right. same stuff on the 2d yeah, yeah it's the same yeah. Uh, 3d assets yeah the only difference is it's like being looking at San Francisco um, from a bus when you're on a flat panel because you can't go through the window but when you're in VR you're there's no bus you're just walking around in it okay right Okay, yeah, it's interesting on the on people being able to be engaged on a on a city mm -hmm. future of cities development basis. So. Yeah, um, yeah, that's this is wow, wow, so much stuff, and that was and that also includes even all the way down to the micro level, which you guys are doing some of the medical. Yes. Actually, it was a Nobel Prize in circadian yes. rhythms right. in two thousand seventeen mm -hmm. for the work of one reality going right. down to right. the medical level to yes. the cellular level right. so there's a lot of potential future with what um, with what yeah with in medicine for virtual reality and what you guys are doing with one reality which is mm -hmm. great um, yeah mega cities are some I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be mm -hmm. there's some things about mega cities that right. I hope they get designed more sustainably in the future because right. there's right. millions and millions of people that are moving into right. them across right. the world right. yeah. Sheridan, let's um, just quick two questions on the way out. Um, do you think we're in a simulation? Yes, we are. We're in a simulation. Um, well, we're already doing it in our minds, right? Think about it. We're simulating. Our brains are computers in a sense. So we're all simulating already. So it, we're cameras, if you think about it. But we're a bio camera. So that's one. And if you're really religious, I would argue you could say, and here's the way I look at it, is you can say, if God or the energy or whatever this divine energy is controlling the universe, then that whatever force it is is simulating whatever's going on here at a macro level. And then what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? In terms of, I think it's that science and the way we act is art. It's all art. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at the Nobel Prize, when we look at beautiful cities, the stars, it's like art. It's just pure art. And, you know, it's, it's, it's um, 
So I think ultimately that's really what all this VR is all about. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. it's a way of looking at the world in a fresh way. Because remember, we we're creating the world there too. Yeah. So it's like, an, if you really think about it, each of us will be artists creating the future world. So the question is, what kind of future cities and worlds do we want to create? Yes, yes. And that's, that's up to us. It's not that VR is just a tool, AI is just a tool. It's beautifully said, civilization is art, and then can we do things like use these tools mm -hmm. to be able to make the future cities that we want to live in, mm -hmm. to make the art better and have less mistakes and less And more beautiful cities and, more beautiful and cities. you know, nicer places where you like hanging out with friends and good music and food. I mean, come on. You know, yeah, yeah. And I think I, I kind of harken back to the good part of the summer of love, or, or the, with the festival, street festivals, and all that. All the really great things you could simulate all this in VR, like anything you want. Yeah. So why not do it? Yeah, there's going to be a lot more to unpack with you when we got to do so more Silicon Valley history, more global tech history development, mm -hmm. as well as right. more on the VR stuff as one reality keeps developing. Yes. Sheridan, thank you so much for okay, coming well, on the show. Okay, well, thank you for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, yes. it's been very enlightening. Thank yes. you. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Get talking more about future cities with your family, your friends, people online on social media. Get talking more about the tech revolution that we've had in civilization. Check out the links in the bio to One Reality, as well as Sheridan's book, Silicon Valley Global Network, as well as there are more One Reality VR demos. That link is below as well. Thank you to Ron Vargas for producing it directly. We greatly appreciate it. And also support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in. Support simulation. Our links are below. Help us sustain, grow, and prosper. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you soon. Peace. Yeah, great. That was nice.